please take your Bible and join me again in the book of Judges, chapter 4 today. Judges, chapter 4. We consider yet another judge. There are, we have said before, 12 judges mentioned by name in the book of Judges. Six of those we would consider as minor names. We know hardly more than their names. The Bible doesn't go in any detail of any significance with those six. And uh, so we are skipping over those for the purpose of considering what we do know uh, about those that are giving, given far more uh, room, as it were, in the Bible. So there are six minor judges and six major judges. We've considered two of those major judges, Othniel and Ehud. Ehud being the more spectacular of those. Uh, and today we come to the third major judge, which is in fact yet even more remarkable in that she is a woman, Deborah. So we'll consider Deborah and her story uh, that's contained here in Judges chapter 4. Before we do that, I want to tell you that, uh, as we've said before, that among these six judges that are major in the book of Judges, there is a downward spiral. The, the greatest of these in terms of character, in, in terms of uh, the absence of flaws, personal flaws, character flaws, was the first, Othniel. And from there, it just begins to circle. And then there, we're going to eventually end up with, with Samson. And Samson has more character flaws than anybody in this room probably the aggregate of all of these people in this room. Samson is a flawed man, and yet we shall see that God uses flawed men. We're going to see it again today, and uh, we're delighted to rem remind you of that. Also, you're going to find that as we work our way through the book of Judges, that the people that these judges judge are more and more and more and more flawed. These people are not getting closer to God. They're getting farther and farther and farther away from God. In spite of God's continued hand on their lives and work in their circumstances, these people find ways to kick the can down the road and just not deal with their uh, problems, their circumstances. The book of Judges, as you'll remind you, is a, covers a period of roughly two centuries, the period of time between the death of Joshua and the rise of the monarchy, which is the ministry of the last judge, Samuel, and then his anointing of the first king, Saul. Uh, so that period, roughly 200 years, maybe 225 years or so. The last thing I'll remind you is by way of uh, introduction is that the theme that recurs again and again in the book of Judges, it comes at the end of the book, because when we get finally past Samson, and uh, his life, uh, the, the Bible is going to talk about sort of the net effect of all of these and uh, how this all has come to bear in our lives even today. And there's a refrain that occurs in four consecutive chapters, 17, 18, 19, and then 21. And, and that refrain is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He said, well, that Sounds like America. Oh, Shazam, you're right. 
does sound like America. Sounds like a lot of other countries too. Sounds like a lot of other countries over the centuries since Israel in the Old Testament. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When there is no authority, when there is no standard, when we just get to vote based on our opinions, we are going to experience the kind of decay and moral degradation and rejection of God that you find in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is in many respects a challenging book for us as Christian people. We want to find ourselves in this narrative, and we can find ourselves easily in this narrative, and it's my ambition that you do, in fact, just that. So we're going to read uh, chapter 4. We are not going to read chapter 5. Chapter 5 is actually attached to this story, but in the interest of time, I'm, I'm opting not to read chapter 5. Chapter 5 is actually a song that Deborah uh, sings as a result of the hand of God, the work of God, as we come to the end of chapter 4. So the good news that's going to occur in chapter 4 is going to give rise to a song that's in chapter 5. It, that song provides details about some of the circumstances in chapter 4, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to have to trust that you will go read that yourself. You will find here, a cycle that's happening. There is, first of all, the sin of the people. We're going to see that here in verse 1. The people did evil. You're going to see again that God is going to bring an oppressor. In this case, he's going to bring uh, a man or a ruler called Jabin. He's going to be the oppressor. Then the people are going to cry out to God in repentance, or at least in a plea for mercy, God, help me. God, fix this. God, I need you to fire up here amongst us. You know, I need for you to deal with this. And God does that. He then provides a deliverer, which heretofore has been these judges. In this case, this is the only of these circumstances, these six major judges, where the judge is not a military leader. In this case, the judge is Deborah, a woman, and she involves the military leader, a man named Barak. So there are four people that are going to come, the four personalities that are going to come in this story. One is Deborah. She's the judge. Two is Barak. He's the military man. He's the general. Thirdly, there is Sisera. He is the opposing general. And fourthly, there is Jael, yet another woman who's going to kill Sisera. So Deborah and Barak go to war. But they don't kill the opposing general that is left a very unsuspecting J.L. And we'll see that in this story. So we're just going to read chapter 4 and deal with some of the circumstances here. Let's read together. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in, let's just call that place, H. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he, that is Jabin, or Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, and the wife of Lapidoth, 
was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. They named a tree after her between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites and the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in, let's just call that Z, way too many vowels in there for me to pronounce that, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from there's that H word again, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tamor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to H, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down to the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he did what all people do with a tent peg in their temple. He died. And there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Judges chapter 4. Thanks be to God for this. 
As we consider this story, I uh, will admit there are several questions that will go unanswered today. We will ask questions ad nauseum about this particular story, but I'll just kind of give you a little background uh, as to what's actually happening here. Again, we see in this particular narrative a similar pattern. There is a period of sin. People reject God. God brings in an oppressor, in this case a, a king named Jabin. There's some debate among people who comment on the Bible as to whether or not Jabin is a title, like Pharaoh. The, the king of Egypt is actually given a title called Pharaoh. That's not his name. His name is not Pharaoh. That's his title. He's the king. So Jabin could be just the king of Canaan. But he li- the king has his, if you will, his palace or his at least seat of government in a little town called Hazor, which is north of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, about 10 miles, maybe 11 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And from there, he's sort of running the show across Canaan. Remember, the people of Israel are commanded through Joshua to come in and put an end to all of these people, but they don't do it. They decide to commingle with all of these Canaanite people. Their women are beautiful, and their men are attractive, and they have money, and they have uh, these false gods that we find to be appealing, and so forth. And the people begin to compromise and adapt their, their own lives to the lives of the Canaanites. And so the leader, the current leader of the Canaanites is this character named Jabin, who runs the show from a place called Hazor. He has a general whose name is Sisera, but his, his base of operations is over toward the Mediterranean Sea. So Sea of Galilee or, is not anywhere near the Mediterranean Sea, but, but, but Sisera runs the show. He's got a stable, if you will, with 900 chariots. He's got a fortress, and, and that's where he runs everything. The military operations come out of there. And in between there and Jerusalem, in between there and the Sea of Galilee, in between there and the rest of Israel that we're thinking about, there's this little dry riverbed. Here it's called the, the River Kishon. If you were to go to Israel today, and I recommend you go, it's first opportunity. Uh, you would find that's, that's typically just called a wadi. Wadi is the word for dry riverbed. You go all across the Middle East, and there are these dry riverbeds. And you wonder, what, what, what is this? Well, this is a river. Well, that doesn't look like a river to me. Well, you're not in Mississippi anymore, where it rains all the time. Here it doesn't rain. These are, these are dry conditions, arid or semi-arid at best. And so the, it's a riverbed because occasionally when it does rain, the water's got to go somewhere. And if you were to read Deborah's psalm, which we're not going to, in the next chapter, you would find that that's part of what God does. That in the battle where Sisera is going to lose all of his chariots, uh, eventually they're going to get stuck in the mud because God's going to send a thunderstorm and chariots and mud don't work together. So the river Kishon, the Wadi Kishon, is going to be the place where the battle occurs, and it's going to be the place where Sisera and his chariots are going to be ineffective. But the, the major player in this story is, is not Sisera necessarily, and it's certainly not Jabin. Uh, in, instead, the major player in this story is this woman named Deborah. And a military man named Barak. 
Now, what's interesting about Deborah is that she's identified as a prophetess. Verse 4, she is judging Israel. Now, there's no, the Bible offers no details as to why. Why would there be a woman judging Israel? Are there no men in Israel? Why is this woman judging Israel? That would not be the history that we have seen thus far in the Bible. This is a, a, a sort of a new thing. There are five women in the Old Testament, by the way, who are identified as prophetesses, including Isaiah's wife. So this is not an unfamiliar turn in the Bible, but it is unfamiliar thus far in the Bible. But here we have this woman named Deborah who is judging Israel. And apparently she is very, very wise and very, very righteous and has a direct line, as it were, to God because she speaks for God. And in the process, she calls out this military man. Uh, it's a man named Barak or Barak. Notice there in verse 5, or rather verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you, go gather your men. In other words, you're a soldier, buddy. Go start being a soldier. Go do soldier stuff. That's what you should do. And we'd like to say, well, Barak, he, he just needed a little nudge and, and he just really, you know, tackled it. And he really just went for it, you know, but that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says, I'll go, but I'm only going if you go. Hello. This is not, this is not typically the way men want to be remembered. Your typical man wants to be remembered as a, a guy who got the marching orders and he goes out and he does his duty. But this guy got the marching orders and he's going to go do his duty, but only if a woman goes with him. That's not the typical way you'd like to be remembered, but that's precisely what happens here. Now, lest you think I'm critical of Barak, I am being critical of Barak. <laughs> Turns out he's not much of a manly man yet, or he's not doing as manly a man things as we would want him to do. But it's interesting in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews commends Barak as a man of faith. Because even in his weakness, even in his frailty, even in his insecurities, whatever you would call them, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details here, just sort of having to read between the lines. But even in his frailty, even in his insecurities, God uses this man. And he does. Because the end of the story is that he does exactly that. He goes to Mount Tabor, which is the mountain that kind of overlooks this Wadi Kishon. And there's the chariots coming from the other direction, and they engage. And God works a miracle, if you will, does powerful things. And these 900 chariots, which are the equivalent of what we would call tanks today, your, your standard uh, military force is no match for these chariots. And yet they get bogged down in the water because God sends a thunderstorm, apparently. And uh, Barak goes and does military things, and he wins this battle, and he kills every one of them. Every one of these chariots are left to rot on the battlefield. And every man, they pursue every man, and they get every last one of them except the general. And he escapes to an ally, this woman named Jael, who is the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And the Kenites have an alliance with Jabin. So this, these, are, these are friendlies. 
These are people that we can trust, people that we can count on. And she invites him in. She, she lies to him. She says, you're safe. All the while knowing she's about to drive a tent peg through his temple. You can lay down here. I'm going to give you milk and cookies. And you know, you're going to be fine. Take a nap. That works right into my plan. I'm about to take care of you. The Bible, again, the Bible says, well, who is Jael? What's her problem? You know, why does she have this beef? I mean, her husband has an alliance with Jabin, and this is Jabin's general, and why? why? The answer is we don't know, right? Got a lot of questions here. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of details, but the Bible gives us enough details, and we shall see them plainly. I want you to note three applications this morning of this story. Number one, the deliverer is not Jael, and the deliverer is certainly not Barak. And the deliverer is not even Deborah. The deliverer is the Lord. We need to feel this, and we need to learn this, and we need to see it again and again and again. The choir sung about it this morning. We have sung about it congregationally. We read it now in the scriptures. The deliverer in our lives is not some human instrument. The deliverer in our lives is ultimately God himself. You see this in verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? In other words, whose idea is this? Whose job is this? Whose goal is this? Whose agenda is this? Whose purpose is this? It's the Lord's. The Lord. All of this is the hand of the Lord, the work of the Lord. You say, well, you know, God couldn't have done it without that man couldn't have done it without uh without these people who are a part of this drama well of course he could he wouldn't have been that guy he can do anything he wants he doesn't need people but he uses people god has ordained that that the work of god be done through earthen vessels your earthen vessel my earthen vessel her earthen vessel everybody's earthen vessel we all are creatures of, of dirt, of clay, as it were. We're just bone and ligament and tissue, and that's what we are. We're weak. We're, we're scared. We're, we're unrighteous. We're, 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 we have all kinds of issues, and yet God has ordained that it be done through these people. But make no mistake, friend, it's God who's doing it. It's pretty easy to say this about preachers. I remind preachers all the time, including the number one preacher in my life, that even bad preaching, which is not to be preferred, by the way, we would much prefer good preaching, but even bad preaching can be used of the Lord in powerful ways that we never knew. I'll walk out of here some Sundays and say, that was the biggest dog of a sermon I've ever given. And somebody will say, Brother Greg, thank you for saying what you said. And I thought that was, it, were you asleep? Were you just not paying attention while I was up there, you know, making a mess? But that's the way God does. He takes people with feet of clay. All of us qualify. All of us are weak. Has not the Lord, she asked rhetorically. Then notice in verse 15, it's a very, uh, very explicit uh, I'll begin in verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Up! This is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Who's, who's actually going to cause the thunderstorm that's going to bog down his chariots? Well, it's certainly not Barak and you either. 
People every now and then, they want, you know, they got some dinner party, they got some wedding or something's going to be an outdoor. They say, Brother Greg, please pray for rain. Well, no, they don't. They pray for against rain. We don't want rain. God, help us, please, no rain. Every now and then, God sends rain, even upon the righteous, even on the people, you know, who've taken care of business, pay all their bills, and, you know, have done all the right thing. They've prayed and fasted, whatever, and they're going to have a party, and it rains. And there are other days when even the unrighteous, God doesn't rain on their wedding, doesn't rain on their party, doesn't rain on their situation. Whoa, why wouldn't God do that for me? I don't know, friend. You're going to have to consult with somebody not named Greg because I don't do weather. And neither does anybody else I know. And certainly not Barak, but apparently on this day, God, who does weather, sent a thunderstorm and his chariots bogged down in the river. And they died, every last one of them except the general. Look again, verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord, the Bible is very clear that Barak and his soldiers were the instrument the Lord used, but the Lord is doing it. In other words, the Lord uses us to help people, to serve people, to, to, to resource people, to encourage people. The Lord uses us to pray for people and come to their aid and to help them in various ways, to serve them again and again and again, to teach them, to tell them, to warn them. The Bible uses our lips, it uses our eyes, uses our heart, our mind, it uses our hands and our feet. The, the Bible says that God uses all of these instruments, but they are the Lord's instruments attached to us, assigned to us. So make no mistake about it, we're going to see this again and again and again, even in the case of Samson, when we get there. You know, in the end, Samson doesn't have his eyes. I'll just use an illustration using Samson. What's the biggest problem in Samson's life? Well, it was his eyes. He couldn't stay away from women. And God in his Providence, God in his wisdom, had his eyes gouged out. <laughs> but in the end, he gave him extraordinary strength. And he served the Lord. And he killed more Philistines in his death than he did while he was alive. And that's the way God does it. He takes what others would say is broken. That would be us. And he uses us for his glory. Just doing stuff. Just helping people. Just caring for people. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Whose sword? Barak's sword. God needed an army, so he sent 10,000 of them down there. And they did the, they did the job. But they didn't do the job because they did the job. They did the job because the Lord did the job through them. Remember that about us as we serve the Lord. I always think of this illustration. Uh, there is a, a famous story, and I don't know how much of this is legend. I don't know, but it's a famous story attributed to Stonewall Jackson, the famous Confederate general. You'll remember that he was uh, a general in the Army of Northern Virginia and was a resident of Lexington, Virginia, and the battle was being fought in Virginia, and 
General Jackson got a few days to go home. He was a staunch Presbyterian, a few days to go home, spend time with his family, and so forth. It's a long history of why that would have been suitable. And, but in the end, it's time to go back. And uh, there's a famous encounter between General Jackson and his wife. And his wife says, dear, I don't want you to go back because I fear for your life. And to which his response, and I paraphrase, goes something like this. Dear, I am a soldier. I must fight. And unless God wills it, I cannot die. But if God wills it, I cannot live. Now, you may want to parse that out for your own thinking, but I assure you, here's General Jackson's theology. I am an instrument in the hand of the Lord, and I need to go do my job. And so are we. Do your job. You got one job to do, and that's to live for the glory of God. You say, well, I'm, I'm not the butcher, I'm the baker. Okay, be the baker. The bakers are here. We'll talk to Wayne Baker about being a baker. He'll tell you all about it. Do your job. So, Barak had a job. He did his job. You say, well, he did it poorly. Well, what do you mean? Well, he had to have a woman alongside. Okay, but he did it. He did it. He was out there. He was on the battlefield. He did his job. And in this case, God used him powerfully. I want to remind you that our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is not in something less. That brings me to the second thing, and that is, again, to, to think about the responsibility of these players or these people who are involved here. There is a there is a woman named Deborah who is a prophetess. What does a prophetess do? Well, in this case, she speaks the word of the Lord. She speaks righteousness to other people. She does her job. Deborah is faithful in her task. We should go and do the same. Barak, what does he do? He's a military man. What do military men do? They do military things. That's what they do. They go out and they do military work. They go to war. They fight. They protect. They defend. They do all these things because that's their job. And there's J.L. J.L. Now, we don't know a whole lot about this woman. She's the wife of this man who is in alliance with the king. But maybe, maybe, it's all hypothetical because we don't know, but maybe she has a relationship with God that we don't know about. She acts on behalf of God. She does her job. She drives a tent peg through the temple of this general. She does what she's supposed to do here in the service of God, in the plan of God. You say, well, she may not have even been a follower of God. That's true. But she did what she did ultimately so that God might be magnified and glorified. I'm reminded that God is the God who's at work in ways that are mysterious as we reflect on our own pilgrimage. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know how your little turns into a lot. I don't know how what you do can somehow mushroom into more. I will tell you, I've talked to far, far too many people over the years who think that their little ultimately is insignificant, to which I would simply point you to the boy who came before Jesus with a lunch for himself 
loaves and fishes, and Jesus fed thousands. I remind you that your little should never be calculated according to human means. Your gifts, your perspective, your contribution, your actions, however small or insignificant you or others might judge them to be, you have no way of knowing how important they may be. You have no way. Just go and do your job, friend. Do your job. If you're the prophetess, then prophesy. If you're the military man, then go out and do military things. You should do these things because this is your duty. You say, well, I'm, I'm not sure I could get a reward if I don't. People say this all the time. You know, I, I'm afraid that I'm going to do it for the wrong reasons. We'll do it anyway. How did, how did Barak undertake this, this project? Well, he did it, if you will, he did it un, unwillingly. He, he did it with conditions. He said, I'll go but you got to go with me. Or, but if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. Well, what kind of a deal is that? I mean, we want this guy to be like Mr. Macho. We want this guy to be Mr. Strong. We want this guy to go out and say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. The only problem is the guy who said that is dead, been dead for over 100 years. Now we got this guy, Barak. You say, well, he wasn't much of a man. Well, I'll tell you something. His name shows up in the so-called roll call of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, as a man of faith. You say, well, he was a weak man. <laughs> Aren't we all? Listen, some of us need to get off our high horse. Big time. And we think, you know, God can only use the man who's, who's great. <laughs> Listen, the Bible's full of God using people who are not great. Oh, sure, there's some great ones. Abraham, David, and we could go on and on. Elijah, great men. But there's far more who are not great men. They're just men. And God uses them. And women. And God uses them. I want to suggest to you today that as we read the story of Deborah and Barak, we're reminded that God takes our duty, our faithfulness, even begrudgingly in this case, and God multiplies it. God does what he does. The problem is not that Barak hesitated. That's, turns out, that's not an insurmountable problem. There have been days in my life, and I suspect in yours as well, where we might say, you know, it took me a day or a week or a month or a year to to get ready for this, to go and do this. I'm not suggesting that's righteous. I, I would suggest, quite on the contrary, that's unrighteous. If the Lord tells you to go, you should go now. Do it now. But in the event that you hesitate, understand this, that God can even work in a hesitate, a, a, a person who hesitates. He's using Barak. He said, well, I've got a condition. I want this woman to go along with me. Maybe he thought Deborah was some sort of... Uh, favored person with God. Maybe she would be the one that God would work through. Or maybe he needed Deborah's voice in his ear or something. We don't, we don't know. Don't know any of the details here, except to say that God works through a man who was willing to hesitate. And God has done it in my life, in your life as well. Let's be faithful to do our job. And if it takes a little longer, because we need a minute, let's get up and do it anyway. Let's be faithful with that. Let me show you one more thing here. 
There's this very interesting circumstance involving verse 11. There's this man named Heber. Now, you know, in, in Mississippi, we might pronounce his name Heber, or we might pronounce his name Heber, or I'll just go with Heber. His name is Heber the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Z, which is near Kedesh. Now, in the interest of, of not wasting your time with too much geography, let me give you a little, little reminder of what's going on here. The Kenites are mentioned in Judges chapter 1. I'm not going to go back there because uh, you, you can do that on your own, but th they are people who settle in the very far south of Israel. That is, that is desert country. Uh, it's, you, you, you live and die there on the basis of how you have access to water and uh, oases and so forth. And so the, the Kenites occupy the land in the very southern part of Israel. But in Judges chapter 1, there is an outlier comment that says this fella, Heber, the Kenite, separated from them, and he moved to the far north of Israel. Now, Susan and I went to Israel because you made it possible for us during a sabbatical years ago to go. And I can tell you the far north of Israel is trees and foothills, even some mountains. Mount Hermon in the far north of Israel is snow-covered year-round. Let me tell you, the climate's better there. The terrain is better there. Uh, the opportunities appear better there than living in the desert in the south. I'm thinking this Heber guy's a really sharp dude. He moved out of the desert. And he moved into the forest. I'm thinking that's a win. So he moves, and he, he separates from the Kenites. And we say, well, why, why does that matter? Well, it doesn't. Until it does. Because Jabin, Jabin, you remember he's the king of Canaan. He's made his capital in Hazor, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, which is just south here, verse 11, from this town called Kadesh or Kadesh. So these two towns are sort of adjacent to one another. And so they have an alliance. Now, if, if Heber, the Kenite, was still south, he would know Jabin from Greg. But he's north, and they need an alliance. So they have an alliance. So when Sisera's on the run, all of his chariots, all of his, his military men are all dead. He's on the run. He, he goes into this woman's tent, and he thinks she's going to protect him. But in the in the wisdom of God, in the providence of God, in the plan of God. You, you describe it any way you like, friend. Here's what happened. He thinks she's a friend, and she turns out she's not. Understand this, that God does details. I say this again and again and again because I'm, I'm shocked at the people who I've met in my life who have been Christians all their life, and they don't connect the dots of the hand of God in their life. They don't see how God did this 10 years ago to make this happen five years ago, to make this happen 
two days ago so that now when I have a need, it's sitting right here in front of me. And only God, if you connect the dots back, would have made that happen and would have made that happen and would have made that happen. Here's this random Kenite guy who his entire family lives in the southern part of Israel who moves north. Why? The Bible doesn't say. The Bible just simply says he did. And why is that important? Because there's going to come a time when a pagan general is going to wreak havoc amongst the people of God, and God is going to put him to death by the wife of this random Kenite. And she is going to drive a tent peg through his temple. How has God worked in your life? I think you need to spend a minute working your way back and see how God arranged a relationship or God arranged a circumstance or God provided this or provided that and you're going to see the hand of God that at the time you had no idea that that random thing or this random thing or these random things somehow are now going to lead to where you are in the service of God or in the following the, the discipleship of God. You are in the Lord's will today, or you're seeing the Lord work out for your gain or your blessing or your benefit. Just follow his hand back, and you'll find these random little stories in your life, just like this guy, Heber the King, King, Kenite. Who is this guy? We have no idea who he is, but he's got an alliance with Jabin, and so the general of Jabin trusts his wife which is a fatal mistake, literally. And God delivered his people through the hands of the wife of an opposing king, governor, ruler, property owner, who knows. How's God worked in your life? The details are completely different. I'm pretty sure none of us know anybody who's ever had a tent peg put through their temple. And I'm not advocating, neither is the Bible advocating that. Differentiate between the Bible reporting and the Bible prescribing. The Bible nowhere prescribes the way you solve your problems is you take tent pegs and bury them in another man's temple. The Bible nowhere prescribes that. But the Bible does report that that happened one time, and in that, God delivered his people. Because God takes evil, God takes heartache, God takes wars and rumors of wars and difficult situations, and he mixes all that together in a way that are mysterious to us and yet accomplishes purposes. You may be stressed out about what's going on in the world, but God's not bothered by it even one little bit. God knows what he's doing. He's working all things after the counsel of his will, and he's working even your things after the counsel of his will. Think of it. God has numbered the hairs on your head, and he knows every detail of your life. The reason you have the DNA that you have is because God gave you that DNA. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. So God has prescribed that you walk in these circumstances that you're walking in today, and you can rest in him and have comfort in him and peace in him, knowing that he is your God and that he is accomplishing great things, things that you may not fully understand until much later. Thanks be to God. He is a God that we can trust, and he can move Kenites from south to north and stage them years in advance so that when God wants to accomplish his plan, he will do it for his glory. He does it in a big way so in the end, no man can take glory, only God.
So in summary, let me challenge you this way. The Bible says that Israel has a king. That king is God. The problem with that is he's invisible, and he doesn't appear to hear us sometimes. But Israel refuses his authority. They do what is right in their own eyes. Similarly, we are Israel, not the old Israel, but the new Israel. And the church has a king. And we struggle with the same challenge, don't we? We struggle with how to apply the will of God in our lives and how to be obedient and how to be faithful with the will of God in our lives. We struggle with the same circumstances, only different. We're not in Israel. We're not in the Middle East. Our, our lives are entirely different. Our culture is entirely different, but the principle is the same. We struggle with the same challenge. How do I take my God, who is the God I cannot see, and yet I know watches over me, and submit to him, live for him, shepherd the details of my life in such a way as to honor him. How do I do that? Well, in fact, we do that in a flawed way. Every one of us fail. Every one of us struggle. (coughs) Every one of us could be characterized as unfaithful in some way, unfruitful in many ways. Every one of us are guilty of sin and separation from God. But the fundamental question still remains, what do you do with that? Do you persist or do you repent? Well, in the case of the book of Judges, we find that they persist. They persist and they persist. Don't miss out. The the scripture says that Jabin terrorized Israel for 20 years. 20 years. How long does it take before you get the message that you're messing up? that your life is a wreck, and the reason these problems or challenges or difficulties have come upon your life is because you are not submitting to God, because you're not turning from sin or turning to God. You're not made much of God. How long will people put up with this? How long will God put up with us? Well, eventually God, in his love, in his discipline, brings an oppressor and ultimately rescues his people. But the The difference in the narrative in the Old Testament over against the New Testament is the oppression comes and goes and ebbs and flows and the deliverer changes. One day it's Othniel. And years later it's a man named Ehud. And years later it's a woman and a man named Deborah and Barak. Because you see, these people die and they can't serve us anymore. But in the New Testament, God didn't send Barak, Othniel, and Ehud. He sent Jesus, who by the power of an indestructible life continues to be our advocate before the Father. So we have one in the throne room of God who knows our name. And he is at work right now in your life to buoy, to strengthen, to lift your life, flawed as it may be, to use your life in the service of God and to not let you sink to the level that the people of Israel did. Even your being here today, even this flawed sermon, even your flawed thoughts about this sermon, (laughs) somehow, are used of God 
to get your attention, to wake you up, to startle you, to challenge you, to confront you, to remind you. This is the nature of God in our lives today. He's given us his son, and by means of his son, he's given us his spirit to live within us so that we do not sink to this level. It was true of ancient Israel. They had no king, and they acted like it. May it not be said of us today in the church. We have a king, and let us act like it. We have the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he alone is God. Let us not forget it as God comes to deliver us again and again and again from the traps and snares of the devil. O Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because evil is at every hand. Until the Lord comes, may the Lord give us grace to serve him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness today, for these words are your words, chapter 4, chapter 5, or these, these words are a help to me, help to us. I pray that as we think about Deborah and Barak, we think about the limitations of human, human flesh, we think about the limitations of human understanding, we think about the fears that can so easily capture our minds or the things that would restrict us. And we also think about the word of the Lord that says, go, get up and go, do your job. We think about that, Lord, and we say, yes, help us to be that. Help us to be just like that. Thank you for this reminder today. May we go and remember that Christ is our advocate and that he prays for us even this very moment that we would go and take care of our duty, our business, your business, and that we'd serve you in a way that honors you. We give you praise and glory with thanksgiving this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.